Sir Bell for the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, managing editor of Fangraphs, his name's Dave Cameron. On Monday, Dave Cameron posted to uh, the website, the website called Fangraphs.com. Uh, he posted to that site a piece on the Toronto Blue Jays and how, despite the fact that they might still, uh, it's still very possible that they could be a reasonable team, uh, that they could still win more games than they lose for the remainder of the season. Um, but even that being the case, that it might be time to acknowledge uh, that they are in, um, if not dire straits, then uh, then at least predominantly dire straits, below average straits, um, so far as straits are concerned. I follow up uh, on that article, that post with uh, with Cameron, perhaps look into it uh, with a little more depth, and also uh, while asking the question that, that if the Blue Jays have performed poorly, why is it that the Red Sox have performed so well? What are they doing, the Boston Red Sox, to do so well? That's another question I ask. I ask him a lot of questions, and then he answers them. That is the format of what is to follow. Let's get to that post-haste, however. So, yes, so it is uh, Fangraphs Audio does feature uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Well, let's start. Uh, well, let's start. I, I think that the the level, the level, seem decent. The um, um, you've written a piece uh, for today that uh, concerns the Blue Jays, and of course, uh, so so a couple things happen right in April. Um, one is we uh, we warn ourselves not to overreact to early season performances, but another thing is uh, that we have to acknowledge is. Uh, um, especially at the team level, certain games have been won and certain games have been lost. And that at a certain point, uh, re- regardless of the uh, I guess the, the true talent level of a team, uh, you have to acknowledge that they're in a certain predicament. And uh, it seems as though uh, from work you've done uh, that the Blue Jays might be finding themselves in such a predicament. Yeah, I think this is one of those cases where uh, maybe fatheads have gone too far with the, you know, sample size warnings where, and, you know, I think, you know, you had your uh, podcast with Russell Carlton where you guys talked about reliability and kind of this idea that people have gotten that there's a line at which point that, you know, statistics go from not meaningful to meaningful, and you know, once they cross this barrier, but it's not that way at all, really. Like, stats get more meaningful as the sample size grows in a, you know, pretty linear fashion. It's not that, like, April has no meaning and then, April plus May plus June plus July plus August plus September has all meaning. It's like each month has some meaning, and then as we have six months of data, we get a pretty decent view of what a team was. We're at the point where we're like 16% of the season right now, so we can't just say that 16% of the season means nothing, and we can't uh, learn anything from what happened. You want to be careful with trying to predict the rest of the season based solely on April data. You should also include you know, prior year data and what we know about the players and health and you know, depth charts and, you know, more information than just April performance, but April performance means something. And in, in the Blue Jays' case, it's been really bad, while the Red Sox have been amazing, and the Yankees have been pretty good. Well, so the Blue Jays... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to get to the uh, to the Red Sox in particular in a second, because they have been very good, or at least their record is, is quite good. Um, but, but So I hear you saying two things, right, in terms of what April performance means, right? So on the one hand, uh, because it's... Uh, because teams have played a certain amount of games, uh, it, it it is telling us something that this April is telling us something about 
the quality of that team uh, in a sort of platonic sense. It's also telling us uh, – it's also giving us indications about um, what they'll have to do in order to make the playoffs. And also uh, in, in a question um, or a thing that has perhaps changed with the second wild card, uh, it's telling us about uh, what, when and what sort of decisions they'll be making in the next few months uh, at the front right. office level. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we've lost when people look at it in retrospect and say, oh, yeah, you know, lots of winning teams have had one bad month and have still had winning months. But for because of when the trade deadline is, the first four months are more important than the last two in terms of uh, predictability of overall record because they changed the uh, decision-making process for the front office. So the fact that the, the Blue Jays have had a terrible April makes it more likely that they're going to trade Josh Johnson in July. If they trade Josh Johnson in July – they're more likely to be worse in August and September. So, uh, you know, I think that we can't just ignore it and say April record doesn't mean anything when the decision comes down to it. You know, April's going to be like 30% of the Blue Jays' season when they have to decide whether to, you know, trade Josh Johnson or keep him and offer him, uh, you know, the compensation pick at the end of the year. I think they're probably more likely to trade him if he's pitching well. Uh, and the fact that they started really terribly and have a nine-and-a-half game deficit in the AL East means that they're they're more likely to make their team worse for the second half. So uh, so in terms of you looked at some teams uh, that had found themselves in a similar predicament to uh, the Blue Jays over I think the last what uh, since 2002 so over the last decade uh, 2003. Uh, um, generally speaking, it seems uh, right that teams that have had a um, both a winning percentage below 400, which the Blue Jays currently have. Uh, and then also have been was it seven and seven games behind seven games back at the beginning yeah, of May yeah at least seven games behind the division leader uh, we find that these teams um, typically do not make the playoffs and, and even uh, very rarely do they do they find themselves uh, back at a 500 record right and I, you know I think the I tried to set the parameters to actually be kind of favorable to the Blue Jays so they have a 346 winning percentage I set the bar at 400. They're nine and a half games behind the Red Sox. I've got the bar at seven because that's what they are behind the Yankees. We're in second place. Uh, and I think, you know, it's interesting, as I noted in the post, no other team in baseball uh, besides the Astros and Marlins is as far behind their division leader as the Blue Jays are behind the Yankees who are in second. So, I mean, you know, the, Yan- the Blue Jays are not just with the Red Sox hot start, but, you know, chasing down the Yankees and then, you know, maybe even the Orioles and Rays, if, you know, the Orioles continue to play well and the Rays pick it up in the second half. Uh, you know, they've got a, a big hole to dig out of just to get back in the wild card race. And I don't think we can just overlook it and be like, ah, seven games is no big deal. When we look at the history of teams, there have been seven games back at the end of April, and, you know, 95% of the time they don't make the playoffs. Right, and your your point, uh, in terms of, like, best-case scenario, we see here the case of the 2006 Twins, uh, yep. which uh, who had about uh, approximately the same record as, um, as the Blue Jays did uh, entering uh, May 1st. And then uh, they had to play uh, at a rate that would win them like 102 or 103 wins over the course of the season, just to just to finish a game ahead of a of a Tigers team that uh, collapsed over uh, in the uh, towards the end of the season. Right, and the, t- the Twins ended up winning that division by one game because uh, the Tigers lost five straight ten a year. So they won the division on the final game of the season. It was the the final day of the season was the only day all year that the Tigers didn't uh, lead the AL Central. Um, and I think, you know, it shows the Twins were the best team in baseball for five months and they made the playoffs by one game. Now, under the current system, they would have made the playoffs much more easily. If they finished 96 wins, that would have easily gotten them in to at least one of the wild card spots. So under the new system, 
uh, they would have had a larger margin for error and that, you know, winning the division would have been nice like it was Steve's last year, uh, but they would have still gotten into the postseason. And I think we, we have to be careful with some of the older data because teams have probably made different buy-sell decisions in the past than they have or than they would now that the second wild card kind of lowers the barrier to entry and kind of incentivizes going for it. So, you know, I think the fact that the Angels uh, of last year show up as the second-best team kind of indicates that maybe the new playoff system will reward teams for keeping their rosters together and going for it. We might see more examples like that in the future. So I'm not trying to bury the Blue Jays and say they have no chance. Uh, but certainly the fact that no team besides that 2006 Twins team has won 90 games is, is not helpful. When last year the barrier to entry for the wild card was 93, uh, even winning 90 doesn't even get them that close. Well, let's talk uh, about where the Braves are, or sorry, the, the Blue Jays are. I want to I want to look at them both, just sort of as a as a generic team that has found itself in this position, and then also some particulars, uh, you know, regarding Josh Johnson, uh, et cetera. In terms of a team that just happens to find itself in this situation, one that both a um, certainly intended to compete at the beginning of the season, and b uh, has found itself, you know, uh, b- below with a you know worse than a, a 400. Uh, Winning percentage, um, nine and a half games back in the standings, or seven behind the Yankees, however you want to, however you want to phrase it. What is the sort of timetable uh, for a team like this, and when is it going to have to make certain decisions uh, in order to best, uh, I guess, optimize uh, their predicament, or you know, to, to make the best of this situation? Well, I think they probably have another six weeks before they have to make any decision. I think you know what we've seen in in reality is that front offices kind of operate on seasons. Uh, so, you know, you have the off season and then uh, you have spring training. And then the first couple months of the season are actually kind of draft season where, you know, major league front offices don't actually employ that many people. So a lot of the higher-ranking executives for the Blue Jays and every other team in baseball right now is focused pretty heavily on the draft. And they're traveling around and they're seeing guys, especially if they have higher picks, uh, they're, you know, they're putting a decent amount of focus on to – uh, the draft, which is, you know, a month away at this point or five weeks away. Uh, and so until you get past the draft, you're not going to see a lot of big trades. Simply, I mean, you know, the, these teams are a little bit distracted by this other significant event that has a lot of meaning to their franchise. And also, you know, teams just don't want to punt the first couple of months anyway. You rarely see uh, big trades in April or May. Uh, I think the draft is kind of a, a bellwether line when people say, okay, the draft is over. Now we're seven or eight weeks from the trade deadline. Let's really start to look around, see who's a buyer and seller. We're a third of the way through the season, and that's really when you see teams start to make adjustments. So the Blue Jays certainly have May to kind of turn their ship around, get themselves back in the race, I think, before uh, Alex Anthopoulos is going to significantly consider blowing up the roster. Uh, he probably wouldn't blow up the roster anyway, but Josh Johnson, I think, is probably the, the main chip here to kind of determine uh, what they're going to do. I, I can't imagine they would trade him before mid-June. So four to six weeks, I would say, is kind of the time frame. Uh, but if they don't turn it around in the next four to six weeks, making up, you know, nine and a half games in the standings in six weeks is not easy, uh, then I think it's pretty likely that he's going to start fielding calls for, you know, uh, maybe the best free agent to be pitcher on the market. So so do we have a sense of, of when it's best to, to trade a player? like So Johnson, correct me if I'm wrong, is a, he's a, um, generally speaking, an above-average pitcher and also – um, also in, in his last year, the last year of his contract, yes? Yes. Okay. So given those parameters, do we have a sense of when it's best to uh, to attempt to trade a player like that? And um, has it changed at all given uh, the new CBA and also uh, the new wildcard arrangement? 
Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's uh, tough to tell exactly how the structural changes are, are going to impact things. I mean, certainly we know it's better for Johnson if he gets traded. I mean, if the Blue Jays are out of the race, he should be going to Alex Anthopoulos and essentially demanding a trade because he's going to get a lot more money if he's traded mid-season and doesn't have compensation attached to him. Uh, so, you know, how really wants to buy him a Rolex or, you know, a jet or something. I mean, he should be heavily interested in getting himself traded out of Toronto if the Blue Jays aren't contending. Uh, yeah, I doubt he'll actually. I don't think we'll see players try and get themselves traded, but it'll be interesting to see because that motivation is there now. Um, because once a I player think, is sorry to interrupt, but that's because once a player. So it used to be uh, like a, like a, a type A free agent, say, um, regardless of whether he was traded in midseason or not, he would still net for his team uh, the sort of uh, the compensation in terms of draft picks. But that's no longer the case. If once a right once a player uh, changes hands. He no longer uh, will net his team that sort of compensation. Right, exactly. A, a player who uh, who changes teams midseason can't be made the the qualifying offer in order to receive a compensation pick. So I think we saw this last year with Zach Greinke and Audible Sanchez, who were traded midseason and got really nice contracts. Uh, Ryan Dempster is another pitcher who you know wasn't, didn't have compensation attached, and then you see a guy like Kyle Lewis who did, and we see what you know the market did to those guys. Uh, I think in Johnson's case, it's definitely in his best interest to get traded. Uh, whether the Marlins will consider or the Blue Jays will consider that is, you know, seems unlikely. Uh, but it, you know, it does change the calculus a little bit. It used to be that, you know, Billy Bean for a little while, like, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, made a habit out of trading for guys who looked like they projected as type A free agents, uh, so that he could offer them arbitration and get the draft picks and to actually come out ahead. He would trade lesser prospects to get a, a free agent to be and then get the draft picks and get better prospects than that he had originally, you can't do that anymore. Now the, the buying teams have to um, essentially calculate the, the acquisition value as you know, two months plus whatever you can do in the playoffs for us. That should theoretically lower the price you pay to get a rental because you're not getting as much return uh, with draft pick compensation. However, the structural changes of the playoff system means that there's fewer sellers than there used to be and there's more buyers. So now the, the demand... Uh, for players have gone up, the supply has gone down, does that offset and, the, and eliminate the fact that compensation doesn't attach to these players anymore? We've only really had one summer to see, um, so it's too early to say, but I think it's a, a kind of an interesting and certainly different dynamic than it used to be. So I mean, this is a, this is game theory writ large, right? You have a, a number of teams waiting to see what other teams are doing so that they can uh, act on those choices, but they themselves are agents in the game. Kind of, yes. I mean, it's not exactly game theory, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the decisions the Blue Jays are going to have to make is, does it make sense for them to sell early because they would be the only team selling in mid-June? So, you know, if you wait until July and a few more teams fall out of the race, the supply of players that goes up, uh, that's available goes up. And so, you know, maybe at that point you have, um, you know, decide, I think everyone knows the Marlins and Astros and probably the Padres and Cubs are going to be sellers at the deadline. Uh, but besides those four teams, there's not a lot of obvious sellers or teams that you can say, you know, there's no chance that the team's going to get back into it and, and make a run. Uh, so if the Blue Jays join the fray and all of a sudden they're marketing a player that's, you know, better than anything those other teams have to offer, they might get a, a pretty good bonus in addition to the fact that they'd be giving another month to whatever contender wanted to acquire uh, Johnson if they traded him in June instead of July. But then, it, you know, if you wait until July, maybe Johnson's pitching better at that point. Maybe a team gets a little more panicky and says, oh, man, you know, uh, 
I really need this guy to make a run. Maybe someone would have an injury and they need to replace a pitcher. So the, the demand for him goes up. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of factors that go into play into when you trade a guy. And with Johnson, you know, his own health has to be a factor. You know, do you keep him for an extra month and hope he saves off the disabled list where if he makes three more starts and his arm starts hurting, you've just lost all your value entirely. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Especially, uh, especially something to think about with regard to pitchers. I would assume uh, for whom yeah. uh, health is a problem. Now, listen, I'd like to discuss uh, one of the reasons why uh, uh, why the Blue Jays are in dire straits, and that's because of the Red Sox. Because the Red Sox are good, uh, and not just good. I think they, I believe, they have the best record in the majors right now. Uh, they also appear to have the the largest lead of any team in terms of first place. Um, just as we don't expect necessarily the Blue Jays to keep playing uh, below 400, we probably don't expect the Red Sox to keep uh, to keep winning more than two-thirds of their games. Um, but it also seems as though, uh, I mean, certainly looking just at their um, their their team wins above replacements uh, or wins above replacement, it it appears as though they're among the league leaders both in terms of uh, player war, field player war, and also pitcher war. I'm curious, what is it that the Red Sox? What is it? First of all, what are they doing well, and what are they doing differently than they did last season? Well, I think probably the biggest difference, and I think this is something we can see coming a little bit, when everyone jumped off the boat last year on the Red Sox and talked about how terrible the team was, and obviously, you know, the chemistry issues and all that kind of stuff, the off-field stuff got a lot, of, you know, large amount of highlights. I think what we really saw is last year the Red Sox pitchers gave up a ton of home runs. Uh, I think their home run to fly ball rate was like 13.5% or something. Uh, and even if you say, oh, they pitch in Kenway and it's a home run park, well, one, it's not really that much of a home run park. And I think over the last decade, their, their team home run to fly ball ratio allowed was under 10%. So this was abnormal for the Red Sox pitching staff to start giving up dingers left and right. Uh, John Lester and Clay Buckholtz uh, were two of the main guys who gave him a ton of home runs. They're not going to get home runs this year, and they're pitching really well. I mean, Lester and Buckholtz have been excellent. Uh, Ryan Dempster has been amazing. I think there's a post coming on him from Jeff Sullivan shortly. Might even, will hopefully be up on the site by the time you listen to this podcast. So go read Sullivan on Dempster, even though I have no idea what he's going to say besides Dempster's been good. Uh, but I think those three uh, have been, you know, three of the best pitchers in the American League. Uh, their bullpen is excellent. I think Koji Uehara is one of the more underrated acquisitions of the, the winner, really giving them an excellent, uh, you know, kind of middle leverage reliever. So it's not just at the end where they have Andrew Bailey and, uh, you know, some good arms in the ninth inning, but they've got a really good arm for the sixth, seventh, eighth inning as well. Uh, and then, you know, their hitters are hitting. I think we, you know, anytime you look at David Ortiz and Justin Pedroia, only a huge shock, you know, Mike Napoli, that these guys are going to swing the bats. The question was the pitching, and so far the pitching has been amazing. Yeah, the pitching is changing. Uh, of course, Dempster's, um, uh, Dempster's performance is a surprising one, seeing as especially last year. I think that he did not have a terrific second half last year with Texas, um, uh, and he's been getting a lot of swings and misses this year. And it seems yep. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what Sullivan's going to talk about either. I assume it's going to have to address um, his splitter though, because that that's what that's his strikeout. But it seems like he's getting a lot of whiffs on that. Uh, yeah, I think one of the interesting things is if you look at the leaderboard right now, the top three in the American League in strikeout rate are you, Darvish, Max Scherzer, and Ryan Dempster. Right, and two of those names probably <laughs> make sense. Right, yeah, and, and then Ryan Dempster, who was the you know hailed as a National League pitcher who couldn't make the adjustment to the AL, and he's killing people with that splitter. Now, I, I think that it is having a sort of weird though is is how well Clay Buckholtz. Well, let's see. This is weird and not weird. It's not weird that Clay Buckholtz is pitching because for years, or that he's pitching well because for years he's been regarded as uh, a pitcher whose uh, whose stuff. Uh, seems to um, 
whose stuff has not been translating into performance. Uh, and of course, there uh, at least once, if if not more so, the Red Sox have changed his approach entirely. I think that he had like a hammer curve when he came up, and then that was sort of traded in for more of a slurvy slider pitch and a changeup or something like that. But in any case, the point is that now he's pitching. He's striking out um, uh, three times as many batters as he's walking. Uh, he's striking out a lot of batters, 27%. Um, and he's looking like the pitcher that we might have assumed him to be uh, in 2008. Uh, I guess from, from what you've observed, if you have observed anything, do you have a sense of what's going on with Buckholz? Yeah, I actually haven't watched Buckholz pitch this year, so the only thing I can say is from what I've seen on this uh, stat line, but it certainly seems like uh, his stuff, is um, maybe better than ever, or at least as good as it's ever been, and he's commanding it better than he used to. So, I mean, you know, these are observations from a stat line, not observations from someone who's watched him pitch this year. Uh, but it certainly seems like uh, uh, his stuff has taken a step forward. Well, let's, let's say, if uh, apart from what he's doing this year, what has been the case in the past that has created this division? Do you think between what it seemed like his stuff ought to have been, but when, but the results that he's uh, that he's produced? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the thing with Buckholz is he's always uh, underperformed his stuff in terms of strikeout rate. I think his career strikeout rate was like six and a half to nine or something like that coming into the year. Uh, he's been a guy who threw hard but didn't miss bats, not Rick Porcello necessarily, but kind of in that ilk of, you know, scouts really like the stuff, there's movement, there's velocity, uh, but he ends up either pitching the contact intentionally or, you know, I think in a lot of cases what we actually see is that these guys uh, don't have a good breaking ball to really put Dev away with two strikes. So I think, um, you know, I've seen a decent number of pitchers over the years who have really good fastball velocity uh, and can maybe get ahead, but then, you know, in a two-strike count, if they're just throwing fastballs, it's not the hardest pitch in the world to foul off or to put in play uh, without a really good breaking ball that you can bury in the dirt or get them to chase out of the strike zone. It's hard to turn those two-strike counts into strikeouts. It uh, seems to me like, you know, from a limited amount of time I've watched Buckles for the last few years, I've never been that impressed that he had a, a dynamic out pitch. I haven't watched him at all this year, so I can't say for sure that that's the difference, but it, it's at least one possible theory based on nothing but wild speculation. Yeah, there you go. Uh, well, that's uh, that's invited, of course. Uh, yeah. uh, um, uh, another player on the team I'm sort of interested in, we talked about some of the choices that a team like the Blue Jays would have to make um at the front office level, uh, maybe we could talk about that with regard to the Red Sox in a moment. But I'm curious on the, um, in terms of actually on the, the active 25-man roster uh, co- uh, decisions that Coach John Farrell or Manager John Farrell might have to make. Um, we have an instance here where we have uh, – w- last year, Will Middlebrooks was probably one of the few bright spots of the team, of a team that uh, was not even – I think they didn't even win 50% of their games, right? Um, th- this year, they are winning f- much more than 50% of their games so far. Uh, they, they appear as though they've um, established themselves as a, as a force in the AL East. And uh, if, if for no other reason than given their present record, uh, they'll have a chance to, to compete as the season goes on. Um, Will Middlebrooks is, uh, is uh, really now is among the worst of the starting players on the team, uh, of a team that uh, looks set to compete. He, um, <clears throat> he received some luck last year or what appeared to be um, some batted ball luck last year, 335 Babbitt, could be his uh, his true talent level. Uh, but he had a very difficult time controlling the strike zone. That's actually uh, declined. Both his walk rate and his strike rate, strikeout rate have declined. Uh, he's not getting batted ball help right now. Uh, what do you think is the sort of timetable for a situation like this where you have a promising young player, uh, one who performed well last year, but uh, is not doing so right now? 
if if he's to continue performing like this or not much better, does not improve significantly, what's the timetable for Farrell and the Red Sox to look for substitutes uh, with the knowledge that they're trying to uh, – and they're trying to, and they both have a chance of winning the AL East. Yeah, I think it's helpful that the rest of the team is doing so well. So there's certainly not a spotlight on Middlebrook's uh, struggle. He's not, you know, costing them noticeable wins in the standings by striking out in the game, or you know, they're not struggling because of Will Middlebrook's they're winging in spite of him, which you know it makes it easier to carry a guy uh, who's not performing well when you're still winning. And uh, so I think his leash is probably um, extended to the point where. They're no longer winning, and he's one of the reasons why. And so I think, you know, if the team falls into a slump and, and he's still not coming out of it at that point, I think there will be more focus on his struggles. Uh, I do wonder, though, looking around, third base is not especially deep in the major league. There's some really good third basemen at the top with, you know, Evan Longoria and, you know, Adrian Beltre and the rest. Uh, but there's not a ton of really good quality third basemen just sitting around in the major leagues right now. Uh, I wonder how easy it would be for the Red Sox to go out and get a significant upgrade over what we'd expect Middlebrooks to do going forward. I mean, certainly they can upgrade on what he's been in the past, but, you know, when you replace a guy, you're not replacing his past performance, you're replacing his future performance. Middlebrooks has a pretty strong minor league track record, at least hitting for power. Uh, you know, he played pretty well last year. I think our forecast for him has to be at least decent. I don't think we should expect Will Middlebrooks to be terrible all year long. How easy is it going to be for the Red Sox to go out and get a better than decent third baseman who's a significant enough upgrade on Middlebrooks in order to justify, you know, replacing him in season and giving up some kind of asset to do it, probably pretty difficult. I mean, you know, I don't see a whole lot of teams out there who are going to be marketing, uh, you know, top-tier third baseman to where it would make sense for the Red Sox to, to go out and give up a guy. I mean, Chase Hedley is probably the, the third baseman who would be most available uh, at the trade deadline this summer. Are you really going to give up the farm? Are you going to give up a Vander Bogarts or someone like that to get Chase Hedley? Uh, so that you can send Will Middlebrook back to AAA? Probably not. Well, you, met, you mentioned Bogarts. Uh, is there a scenario where it would make sense to replace Middlebrooks with Bogarts? Uh, who, I don't, well, you know, he's played a bunch of shortstop in the minors, but looks like a future third baseman. Yeah, I don't think so. And mostly because of the reviews I've heard this year and talking to some people in the organization, they actually think Bogarts can stick at shortstop, maybe not for the rest of his career, but, you know, for at least a few years. And I think, you know, what we saw with Manny Machado last year when the Orioles brought Machado to the majors to, to fill a hole at third base, Machado's basically stuck there now. Now Machado's a, you know, terrific defensive third base, but he's still going to have value at third base. Uh, but I, I don't think the, the Red Sox want to get into that situation where they bring Bogarts up, he succeeds at third, and now it's hard to move him back to shortstop. I think they, they want Bogarts to be their shortstop. You know, Stephen Drew is a, a very short-term replacement. Jose Iglesias is, you know, not a hitter. Um, so I think, you know, if they want Bogarts to be their shortstop of the future, having him come up and replace Middlebrooks at third base creates more problems than it solves. Okay. Um, all very interesting, that. Uh, two quick things before uh, before you've uh, fulfilled your obligation. Um, one, uh, you did uh, – Dave Cameron, you uh, you did the rare uh, – rare for you, the rare Sunday post. Yeah, uh, I yes, did. Yes, we were, we were talking on Monday. We um, did the rare Sunday post, and uh, it involved Bryce Harper. Right, because yesterday was the only day that it was going to be true that Bryce Harper had played exactly 162 games in his career. So I figured I could wait till Monday and I could say, as of two days ago, Bryce Harper had played it. But I thought it would be more impactful if, you know, here's what Bryce Harper has done in his career to date, which is, you know, an anniversary of his call-up. I think generally you want to celebrate anniversaries on the, the day of. That's one thing I've learned as a married man is, you know, it doesn't necessarily make sense to push anniversaries to a more convenient time just because, you know, it works better in your schedule. Yeah. 
Uh, well, um, it, it also has been said that Bryce, Bryce Harper doesn't really have much in the way of uh, bargaining power uh, so far as you forgetting that anniversary, uh, whereas your sure. wife might have more uh, in the way of doing that. Right. Uh, she can threaten it, 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 I, I will note, it is funny the amount of anniversaries my wife remembers. We're actually going to go to Charleston this weekend just to um, hang out and eat some good food and have, have a good time. And she was like, oh, we're, it's almost like we're celebrating the anniversary of when you proposed. I'm like, that's not a real anniversary. <laughs> like, the day I proposed is not a holiday. You might remember it fondly, but we're not celebrating that anniversary. We're just going to go take a vacation. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, well, uh, I hope you have a nice uh, weekend. Uh, so, yeah, but you uh, you did a post on Harper. Uh, Harper, uh, I believe over the past calendar year or as of as of yesterday, had the well, – he's like a ninth. He's in the top ten at least in terms of – War, which is good, and also in in doing that, you also realize that Mike Trout is very good. Yes, Mike Trout was eleven war over the last calendar year because he was actually called up the same day. It wasn't his major league debut, and so he played more than 162 games in the major leagues. Uh, you know, because of his service time the previous year. But yeah, over the last calendar year, uh, Mike Trout has been an eleven win player, uh, distancing himself from the pack. So in a post that was praising Bryce Harper, we had to take a side note and say, "Holy crap, Mike Trout!" Yeah, uh, but but Bryce Harper, um, a year older in terms of, or year, sorry, I should say, a year younger uh, in terms of baseball age, and uh, also also doing very well. Yeah, he, he's not a bad baseball player. <laughs> I think uh, you know before the season, I picked Bryce Harper as my uh, you know totally guesstimate pick for uh, NL MVP in part because I thought the Nationals were the best team in the league. And he would be the best player on that team. And so even if he's not the best player in the league, the best player on the best team often gets consideration for MVP. He might just earn the second of a merit. So, I mean, Bryce Harper right now is just so good. He's not even striking out anymore. Uh, you know, his power looks like it's taken a, a real step forward. Last year, you know, we had heard talks of the 80 power, but he didn't show it a lot. Uh, he hit some monstrous home runs, but there were stretches where he would go where he wouldn't drive the ball on a regular basis. He's killing the baseball right now. Uh, you know, you watch him play, and it's it's uh, tempting to make the argument that he's already one of the best, you know, two or three players in baseball. We don't have the track record to defend that statement yet. He's probably not quite at that level of a Joey Votto or one of those guys, Robinson Cano, Ryan Braun, whoever you want to throw in that mix. Uh, but he's pretty close to being in that mix, and he's 20. Right, which uh, which suggests, of course. Uh players age differently on an individual level. But uh, if we look at the typical aging curve, uh, he still has some years to go before really any of his – before his skills, uh, I guess, uh, you know, he really aggregates all his skills and they're at their peak. Yeah, I think what we're seeing from Bryce Harper – and you know, I made this argument last summer when I was telling people that I preferred Harper's long-term career to Trout's long-term career, which, you know, seems a little crazy to some people given how much better Trout was last year. Uh, but I think what we're seeing is – Bryce Harper has all the makings right now of an inner circle, uh, you know, best player of all time argument kind of start to his career. Now, it might not end that way. He might get hooked on drugs or he might get injured or who knows what might happen. But, you know, you look at the greatest players of all time, they have not been as good at this age as Bryce Harper is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, having to decide between Harper or Trout is not really – it's not really a decision you have to make. They're both – they can both be very good. Yes, right. These yeah. could go down as two of the greatest players of all time. Right. Um, uh, and finally, uh, last thing before you go, you uh, you became smitten. Was it this past Friday? You became smitten with a uh, what you described as the Mona Lisa of gifts. You want to talk about the contents of that gift and uh, why you are so taken by it? 
so if you haven't seen this yet, hopefully you have, because it went around the internet, it was on Reddit's front page, I think, uh, this thing has gotten the popularity it deserves. Uh, it is the coolest baseball gift I've ever seen and might ever see. Uh, Drew Shepard, who, uh, now works for Hangrafts, I hired him six hours after this <laughs> thing went up there. I tracked the guy down and offered him a job and he took it. Uh, he created an overlay of you Darvish's five pitches. Uh, Darvish actually probably throws six or seven, but he picked the five most popular. Um, the ball coming out of his hand at almost the exact same point. The release points are, are uncanny. Uh, and then they go five very different directions. He did a great job with the graphics of highlighting the ball so you can really see the movement. Uh, it, it is really uh, just a fantastic visual image of uh, Darvish throwing five distinctly different pitches that do five very different things and how hard it must be to tell what the ball is going to do when it leaves his hand. Certainly there's spin that hitter, major league hitters can try and pick up, but the amount of movement that he gets after the ball leaves his hand and how, how much it varies and how his release point doesn't vary so you can't pick it up just based on where his arm is, uh, shows why you, Darvish, might just be the best pitcher in baseball right now. So is that is that the reason you're attracted to it, do you think, is because of how sort of succinctly and compactly it illustrates um, what, what Darvish is doing or, or the sort of these sort of um, – the decision, the decisions that the batter is forced to make so quickly with regard to Darvish, and you sort of see all that illustrated simultaneously? Yeah, I mean, I think it does a really great job at just showing how hard hitting must be. I mean, right. it, you know, the, ca- the camera angle isn't great. This isn't one of those, like, fantastic center field cameras or something where they also illustrate kind of the, the toughness it must be for to be a major league hitter. But when you see, you know, that big, slow curveball uh, coming out of a hand at the same basically the same location as a tailing two-seam fastball that ends up on your hand. One pitch is 97 on, you know, on the inner half of the plate or just a little bit inside. The other is 65 falling off the plate on the outside corner at your ankles. Uh, and you have to figure that out, the difference between those two, not to mention the other three pitches that he's throwing. Uh, and you have to figure that out in, you know, 0.4 seconds or something. Like, good luck. Well, yeah, actually, uh, with regard to that slow curve, there were two notable ones. He threw four of them, I think, total on that one start, but uh, it was against the Angels. He threw one, I think, a first pitch swinging strike to Josh Hamilton, who looked as though he could have swung at it twice before uh, <laughs> before it made it to the plate. And Josh Hamilton might actually do that. He might. Yeah, it's true. If anyone could, he would, uh, yeah. he would somehow find a way to have a, a swing percentage over 100. Um, right. He... Uh, uh, but yeah, and you, they, you know, the the camera panned to Hamilton after that, and he's just like laughing because he's like, "That's right. yep, that happened." And then, and then a, a slightly different reaction was for called strike three <laughs> to Trout. All right, Mike Trout, uh, yeah, yeah, who just who who literally you could see him because the uh, the camera zooms into him right after the pitch lands in the glove. You see um, Trout just like he looks, he's angry, he spits, right. and then he turns around. <laughs> um, uh, I think a commenter on your post noted that he actually spit on that curveball. That's probably the best way to describe Mike Trout's reaction. Yeah, he, he was not, it was not thrilled. But it seems like, it does actually seem, I mean, I guess the reactions are, are uh, multitudinous, but the idea, right, is for a professional batter is that he is forced given um, – Given Darvish's repertoire, he's forced to be prepared for a 95-mile-per-hour fastball. And if you're forced to prepare for that while also accounting for the the excellent 85-mile-per-hour slider that looks like the fastball, trying to prepare for those two pitches while (laughs) – and then getting that curveball, it's not – it's a a real task. 
not fair. Yeah. I think it's, it's still Miller Dude. Yeah. I mean, you, you basically at this point, I think what we can say about you, Darvish, is he can't be beat unless he beats himself. The times that he struggles are the times that he can't throw strikes. He loses his release point. He's all over the place from a command perspective. When he's throwing strikes, I, unhittable is not the right word to use, but it's close. Right. And uh, it deserves to be noted um, that if we look at the uh, at uh, the nerd nerd scores for pitchers just released today, Dave Cameron, uh, we find you Darvish's name uh, probably not surprisingly atop that list. Yeah, he's um, pretty good. Did you, I, I will note that we we you know he has in his first six starts faced the Astros, Mariners three times. So regression is coming when he faces major league offenses. But <laughs> you know the Angels offense that he pitched at in his last start was pretty good, and they looked. Terrible. Well, as you know, it I think over the weekend via Twitter, uh, the Astros have almost a league average batting line in terms of WRC plus. Yeah, actually a little above average, but I think you know that's they had just finished facing the Mariners in the three game series, and they faced the back end of the Mariners rotation. So that was the Astros immediately after beating up on Joe Saunders, Blake Bevan, Aaron Harang. Uh, you know, it was it was inflated because of their competition. And it should be noted <laughs> that uh, Joe Saunders uh, is on the bottom ten of the qualified pitchers, uh, so far as pitcher nerd is concerned. Yeah, I would, he should be on the, uh, whatever is below, like it says negative nerd, Joe yeah. Saunders should be a negative nerd. He might actually be, uh, before the adjustment, um, I actually have that number available uh, right here, before the adjustment, uh, which just compacts everyone 0 to 10, uh, Joe Saunders is, actually Joe Saunders escapes zero-dumb, he's 0. 0.63, there are only a couple of pitchers. Scott Feldman is actually a, a minus point eight right now. Okay. I, actually, as I was saying that, I've realized you know negative nerd is what a lot of people have called me in my life, especially when I've written poor things about their team. So maybe I don't want to start like uh, encouraging the word, you know, use of the words negative nerd. Negative nerd. Yeah. Well, we'll keep that for you. Uh, well, um, we won't use that anymore because we're done. Uh, but uh, thank you, uh, Dave Cameron, for making your weekly appearance on Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for segueing away from my discussion of my travel. <laughs> That's his uh, managing editor, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.